Welcome to VLGA Connect. My name is Catherine Arndt and I'm the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. I hope you enjoy today's Connect episode brought to you by the VLGA, the national broadcaster on all things local government. everyone, it's VLGA Connect Governance Update Time, brought to you by Hunt and Hunt Lawyers with Steve Cooper, the Chief of Staff of the VLGA, joining me online as always. Hello Steve, How's, is the washing machine uh, on pause or having a break? You've sorted the washing machine, Chris, that's all fine. Thank you for asking, I really appreciate that you care. Well, uh, you know, a few people have commented on our discussion about washing machines and pegs last week. Uh, some of the insights into the, the, the home life of Stephen Cooper in particular uh, have, have caused quite some discussion out there in local government land, I believe. And Chris, you know I say this with love, but a few people need to get a life, really. <laughs> Look, I've got a, can I just do a mea culpa at the outset? No. This is very, very hard for me to do, you know. Atypical mm. of a male, I'm sure. I hate to admit when I'm wrong. But I've always been super critical of clickbait. And I, yes. I look at things and think, that is just clickbait. I'm not going to click on that and give anyone the satisfaction. Oh, what did you do? Well, I in, indulged in clickbait. You know, last episode, last week's episode I called, the one where Steve walks off. And then <laughs> I think you, you described it as some confected drama or something to that. Uh, I think I tried to use purported, Chris, because oh, you, you did like that yes. word. Yes, you did use the word purported. And I've had a number of people say to me, nice bit of clickbait, which embarrassed, oh. embarrassed me because people have clicked on it to see, well, what made Steve walk off? That was the idea, of course. <laughs> and so I am sorry. Those things, they realise that they've just had whatever amount of time they say it on, just completely wasted. <laughs> well, I hope it wasn't completely wasted. I hope we then sort of drew them into some very useful and important discussions. And I'm sure that was the case. I'd like to hope so. Yes. So I do apologise and I cannot promise I won't do it again. <laughs> well, you're in a bit of a habit now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate to tell you, it's probably our most watched episode to date. Oh, dear. Date. Yeah. Anyway. So there you go. Um, What's been happening so, this week? Well, there's been. I was going to ask you that question because I know there's been a bit happening for you in particular at the VLGA, Steve. Well, oh, Chris, I was worried you were going to ask me that. And the fact is I can't tell you except oh. to say, well, the VLGA board and the uh, staff group had a strategic planning meeting yesterday, which was, I would file it under very exciting um, I would also file it under confidential for the moment, so I can't tell you what happened. Exciting and confidential, and we can't draw any more than that out of you at this point. No, because we know with elements of confidentiality in local government, for example, that there is a public interest in that confidentiality. And so we're still doing some work um, at our end about what some of the finessing of the strategic plan, as Tom Hafey would have said to Kevin Sheedy. Um, so... <laughs> Um, so, um, yeah, all in good time, Chris. Can, can I ask the question that's on the, and you may not answer this, but it'll be on the lips of every viewer of the governance update. Does that strategic plan and direction include a future for the governance update, Steve? Can I be so bold as to ask that question? There is no certainty in life, Chris. Oh. <laughs> all right. Okay. <laughs> we, we, might need, we might need a ground swell of support to ensure that. 
I think an edit of my resume is uh, is on the list of tasks to do today, <laughs> just in case. No, 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 only, only joshing. I'm sure all will be revealed in the uh, fullness of time, and I look forward to hearing more about that bit of exciting news for the VLGA that sounds like it's coming. It is. And thanks, Chris. I love in the fullness of time nearly as much as purported. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, you've had that discussion. We've had lots of uh, lots of stuff in the news, really, to, to exercise our minds uh, this week. I noticed the uh, the comments that Catherine, as the CEO of VLGA, made a few weeks ago around you know political discourse versus appropriate behaviour, continuing to get some some coverage in the press around the state. Um, do you think that's managed to activate a discussion about that? issue in the sector at the moment? Well, I mean, the amount of, um, as you say, the, the response to um, Catherine's media release on behalf of the VLGA has been, um, been quite extraordinary. Um, the regular conversations going on at councils, I, I can't imagine that people are not at least having um, internal conversations around culture. I would hope so. Um, Chris, I was just wondering if we could do something about that. What could we do? I'd be we happy, could happy to help do something. <laughs> We could embark on a little project and um, maybe get... It strikes me sometimes that one of the issues around culture, and, and Catherine's touched on this, is that um, conduct that is seen as political and is okay because it's, well, it's just politics, you should have accepted that, at times also um, is corrosive in terms of the culture of organisations. It's not necessarily um, corrupt conduct or misconduct, but sort of political behaviour. And I was wondering if we could um, perhaps create a little list, a top seven or a top 10 maybe. Uh, another one of your famous top 10s. That would be good. So so what you're talking about is types of behaviour that might on the surface seem not unreasonable, but they sort of fly under the radar or push those boundaries of what's appropriate in terms of political discourse. Is exactly. Just yeah. politics that when yeah. Councillor A does X, well, of course... Councillor A did that because that was just the politics of the issue to um, respond to rival councillors or to get traction for a particular issue mm. um, to garner a bit of publicity. So what I was wondering, Chris, is that if viewers and listeners, please do not publicly um, publish your submissions, but if they could perhaps... Um, message you or I via social media or our emails, which are pretty well known, or even VLGA at vlga.org.au um, with their example. And as I said, we're not talking about misconduct. We're not talking about corrupt conduct. We're just talking about the politics and, and we'll de-identify it and turn it into a top 10 because I don't think we want to be giving this sort of stuff a public airing and have people, you know, raising issues that then create, you know, World War Three at their council. No, I, th I think that that's good thinking. So privately reach out to us, direct message on LinkedIn or Twitter. I think most of the councillors uh, and CEOs, for that matter, that uh, listen to the program uh, are connected with us on the socials. So that sort of stuff that uh, just tests the boundaries, it, it annoys people, but uh, it's not necessarily wrong on the face of it. That's what no, you're about, it's that it? sort of, oh, is that a conduct breach? Oh, no, it's not really, but I'd not like really. it to be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. All right. Let's see what we get from that. Let us know privately, as Steve says, and we'll put together a list of those sorts of behaviours that perhaps need a bit of a spotlight on them. Mm. Okay. So what come up with. What Good else, Chris? Steve, uh, what, so what do you make of the uh, former Prime Minister shenanigans this <sighs> week in terms of trust and transparency and 
openness and all of those issues. Oh, Chris, where does one start? Mm. Um, I mean, doesn't it, you know, when we talk about transparency, one of the things is that, and there is a difference between, uh, I touched before on the fact that some matters are confidential, for example, and the Local Government Act connotes that there's a whole series of sorts of issues and matters that are confidential because it's a public interest, which is not quite the same thing as transparency in terms of the way that decisions are made and who the decision maker is. And there's no reason, there's no reason for the, the former Prime Minister, I would have thought, to hide the fact that he had authority over certain ministerial decisions. Uh, especially from those ministers that generally had those responsibilities. <laughs> no, well, you'd sort of have to imagine that if trust is eroded um, internally to government, then um, public trust isn't going to be helped by that sort of conduct either. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I thought some of the coverage is a little bit unfair on the Governor-General, trying to draw the Governor-General into this. Do you, do you agree with that? Um, I thought that too, Chris. Um, and I've got to say, until yesterday, <laughs> until, right. the, until the Governor-General did a media release saying that he had no way of knowing, right. because I thought okay. the Governor-General was on pretty solid ground when a lot of pretty eminent legal academics were saying, no, the Governor-General shouldn't in interfere. Hmm. But when the Governor-General said, well, I had no way of knowing, therefore I didn't do anything, that raised a whole lot of other questions. And it sort of said to me, IG, if you're going to do media, you want to be sort of thinking about what the consequences are because, you know, in public life, um, it's a pretty big call to say, I didn't know, because the obvious question is, did you look? If you're going to do media, you say, one might have asked uh, Scott Morrison to consider that as well before his press conference. Uh, yes, you know, train wreck. <laughs> it sure Absolutely was. train wreck, yes. And what about the media in all of this? Um, th th let's uh, those two journalists, I think they are, who wrote the book. You reckon they knew what they were sitting on for obviously some period of time before the book came out. You'd have to imagine that they did, and if they didn't, you know, what were they thinking? Yeah. Um, I heard. So, I thought the comment of the week in regard to the media was someone that said, "Well, what would have happened if Woodward and Bernstein um, had have sat on the information that they had?" Um, yeah in advance of a book rather than do what the Washington Post rather courageously did yeah. um, back in the 1970s. Uh, and for me, another comment of the week, I noticed a friend of the program, Ruth McGowan, made the point, um, particularly, I think, to the media, just hang on, you don't need to bring in Mrs. Morrison and the kids into this. They're not part of it, not appropriate. Just have a good hard look at yourselves, basically, I think she was saying. I think that's true. And in fact, in terms of the comments the former Prime Minister made, the one that resonated most for me was um, when he called for some privacy. Um, and, um, I, you know, I don't think there's much need for journalists to be camping outside people's houses. Um, mm. That's unnecessary. No. But no. by the same token, um, don't raise the subject of your family as part of your own political dialogue. Yeah. So tough one. Okay, uh, this journey down Governance Avenue brings us to the corner of public art and policy, Steve. Uh, what are we seeing here at this intersection this week? We, we have had, Chris, we have had a huge week in public art. <laughs> we have. We have. It's been cheeky. It's been subversive. But ultimately, it's been quite beautiful. It has, but it's not allowed to be cheeky and subversive in Adelaide. Where Are we starting in Adelaide or are we starting? Yeah, yeah we may as well now that I've done that, yes. You have. So what you're referring to is that the Adelaide City Council did a four-year public art strategy, and when the strategy got to the council, they took out cheeky and subversive, 
and they left in beautiful because they want beautiful public art, not the other mm. sort. Mm. But yeah. surely beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and the beholder may see some beauty in cheekiness and subversiveness. Well, I think to um, I think to some extent, Chris, all art is ephemeral. That um, none of it remains in the one. Like you can't expect art is going to remain. A piece of art is going to remain in the one spot in perpetuity. You also can't expect that views won't change. We talked about. Um, we talked about uh, some months ago uh, a situation in the US where uh, monuments were being taken down to Confederate generals. And part of the context for what happened over there, some would say it's cancel culture. Some would say that, oh golly, in the south of the US, there were a great number of monuments erected to Confederate generals between 1880 and um, 1930. And maybe as time's gone on, the curating of those um, art collections has said that, you know, society has moved on. So yeah. I sort of find it interesting that what might have been cheeky and subversive in one era might be beautiful in another era. And it's a bit kind of, you know, sort of at times the role of art to reflect and shape public opinion. You've clearly thought about this more deeply than I have. You mentioned the uh, statue subject. Well, that's been a live issue in Hobart this week, the culmination of a process to consider whether a statue of the former Tasmanian Premier William Crowther should uh, remain or be taken down. Now, briefly, the backstory: former Premier, late 1800s, the statue went up. In around about 1869, I think it was, he's known to have uh, mutilated the body of an Aboriginal man, and that, of course, has uh, sat very uncomfortably with uh, local Aboriginal people in particular for some time and they've been campaigning for this statue to be removed and this week they got their wish yeah so um and the council will take some steps to uh, remove the, the statue and put it into storage and it's been uncommittal um so far chris in terms of whether the statue will be somehow uh re-imaged or remain in storage there's no real there's no real certainty of that. Um, do you know one thing I did discover this week on that topic, and we'll yes. come back to Hobart. No, um, tell me. The City of Melbourne has a rather excellent uh, webpage in um, describing all of its public art collection. Oh. Okay. Did you also know that the Burke, the rather iconic Burke and Will statue, which is in storage at the moment because it was in the city square where there's a big new railway station being built, yes. has been relocated five times? Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, there you go. Yeah. Now, I'm not sort of saying, I mean, Burke and Wills are kind of a bit of a just a quirky Australian thing, but it, I thought that was a really interesting thing that, you know, public art does move around. Public art, you know, falls in and out of favour. Um, I think that rather famous uh, Ron Robertson Swan um, construction, The Vault, uh, to my knowledge, has had three locations. <laughs> Where is it now? Um, last time I saw it, it was down, um, down near the um, aquarium on the Yarrabank. Right. Okay. Yeah. Haven't been in there for a while, so. No, it's sort of tucked away in a little pocket. But, you know, it, like it's just public art and it should be there. And I just think, um, yeah, views change and, you know, maybe we should respond to that. I think in the, you know, my take personally is um, as we go through uh, nationally at a state level and locally, uh, truth-telling and reconciliation and ultimately treaty that, you know, if, the local elders are making a request um, such as that, it's probably a pretty good thing to take heed of. Yes. Um, yes. Just one other comment, Chris, um, that just popped up this week. Yeah. You know, there's a suburb called, a new suburb called Whitlam in Canberra. 
No, I did not. Well, there you go. And there's a public park in Whitlam that has just been named Blue Poles Park. Blue Poles Park. Well, that's a famous piece of art too, isn't it? Well, that was scandalous at the time that mm. the Prime Minister authorised the spending of millions of dollars on Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles. Um, but we now look at Blue Poles and the fact that that has been in the ownership of the National Gallery of Australia has meant that it's been able to be loaned to other galleries. We've been able to um, borrow uh, magnificent works of art from overseas and, you know, the nation has benefit, benefited from the art tourism that's um, resulted. So these sort of views change. Mm. Um, compared with compare and contrast with at the time, it was just a random shambolic piece that was done by a drug addled bloke who rode over it with a motorbike, apparently. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. So now, now we have flash forward to 2022. We have Blue Poles Park in the suburb of Whitlam. We do. Who we would do. have ever predicted that? I, I know. Chris, just to um, wrap that up, can I also give props to Greater Western Water, who actually also tagged. Um, Wyndham City Council and Melbourne Water into the post, so maybe they were involved too. There is a new water tower that's been uh, erected in Tarnit with the installation of um, a, a lighting art exhibit that sort of looks like raindrops kind of running down the side of the, uh, of the water tower. Absolutely gorgeous. And there is a bunch of evidence that really supports the role of public art in community connectedness, like people feeling they belong in a community and having pride in their local community. So, you know, I think we should take our art, um, our art subject really seriously and, you know, cherish the public art that we have, even though it may change from time to time. Fabulous. I didn't know about yeah. that. I'll have to have a look at, out for it. I wonder if you can see it from the train, the V-line train as you're heading into the city. I'll, I'll take my binoculars. and I don't know, but let's, um, let's, Put a tag on the, uh, put a link on the uh, on the show notes, Chris. Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, let's get to some uh, council-related news. Uh, a conduct matter came to a conclusion at Frankston this week. Uh, those who might be interested, you can read the conduct panel report in the papers that went to the Frankston Council meeting this week. Um, the short of this is that there were a number of allegations about inappropriate behaviour or seeking a serious misconduct finding actually from one councillor against the mayor of the time, all of which were dismissed. And the council has agreed to pick up some of the legal costs incurred by the respondent in this matter. Who was the mayor? Yes. Um, I would presume, Chris, that mayors all over the state will be um, heartened by this decision and in, indeed aspiring mayors and other councillors that um, what the decision does is reinforce the ability of the mayor to quite to reasonably support councillors in the performance of their roles, which sort of includes um, drawing their attention to appropriate use of social media and so on. Which is a requirement of the mayor mm. under LGA 2020. Exactly. So, um, you know, and maybe this is a, a positive sign of, even though it's not precedent, but our conduct um, panel coming down with a decision that sort of further reinforces and clarifies the role of the Mayor, Chris. Yeah, so I don't propose to go into the specific specifics of this. A lot of it was around sort of social media posts and uh, media comment, etc. Et the the press has reported that the matters cost Frankston City Council around thirty thousand dollars, and about five of that, or four and a half uh, almost, uh, is a cost incurred by the mayor, or the former mayor, we should say, not mayor currently. Yeah, mayor um, Yeah, in, former in, mayor uh, yeah. Yes, in, in defending uh, his position at that panel. 
And um, in fact, that was a part that really um, tweaked my attention, Chris, was I was sort of reminded to go and have a look at, well, what are the circumstances in which a council um, can um, reimburse, um, for, in this case, the mayor for expenses incurred in this matter? And um, I did have a little yarn with Tony Rannick at Hunt and Hunt, and he reminded me of Section 40 of mm -hmm. the Local Government Act that says a council... Um, must reimburse a council or a member of delegated committee for out-of-pocket expenses where the council is satisfied are bona fide expenses have been reasonably incurred in the performance of the role of council or a member of the delegated committee and are reasonably necessary for the councillor or member of a delegated committee to perform that role. And I think that third tranche is particularly um, pertinent, Chris. All right. Um, we'll pop a link to those uh, papers if anyone wants to have a look at that report in the, the show notes. Uh, in some uh, a first for a Victorian council since our last episode, Kingston has announced they're the first Victorian metropolitan council to have a shared parental leave policy, Steve. Yeah, um, and well done to Kingston. And, of course, there has been a bit of criticism of the council from um, the usual suspects uh, around... Really? Oh, yes. Over um, this? Over this. As to why should, you know, why should council staff have parental leave? And, um, you know, my take, Chris, is should councils who are big employers of staff uh, seek to adopt best practice and in particular um, respond to a parents of work white paper that the federal um, government had previously announced in an environment where we know that, um, you know, the sharing of parental responsibilities is actually um, both economically and socially a good thing. Yeah, I'm struggling to see the uh, the basis for, for criticism of this, but there you go. Uh, perhaps You're not one I... of the usual suspects, Chris. No, no, I guess I'm not. So the initiative, according to the press release from Kingston, the initiative now allows both parents of children born after the 30th of June this year to access up to 104 weeks of parental leave, including 16 weeks of paid leave. Again, link in the show notes if you want to read more about that announcement out of Kingston this week. Port Phillip, uh, early years decision, big decision uh, at the council this week where there were three, I think, early years uh, centres um, that they've been consulting on and were proposed to be potentially sold. The council has decided not to sell them and that's a decision that's been welcomed particularly by the, the Minister for uh, Early Childhood. Um, forgive me if I've got the title wrong because I probably have, Ingrid Stitt. Um, Interesting move here, Steve, in the face of pressures in this space that a lot of councils are feeling. There's been a real um, public campaign about um, this issue, Chris, and the council had, um, to the best of my knowledge, um, until fairly recently, been holding firm on the decision um, uh, to, I, I guess, um, I'm just trying to think, to, to get out of those particular locations and to consolidate those services. Yeah. Um, but... I thought the, uh, and this is certainly no criticism of the council or Mayor Marcus Pearl, it was, um, I think the mayor has been in a spot where the media release has said as much as he is able, but pro probably not as much as he would like, because um, certainly it conveys the decision of the council um, in principle, but also makes the point that there are um, a number of sort of financial and, you know, other hurdles to be negotiated before the council can really formalise that decision. Yeah, so um, there's been a few councils that have already uh, finalised building blocks partnership deals with the state government. More to come, and I think what this one's hinging on is that building block partnership to be 
agreed to the satisfaction of uh, the parties so that the council can uh, basically uh, rebuild, I think, those uh, those centres mm. under those arrangements. Yeah, certainly a statement of intent there from the council. Yeah, rebuild or renovate, I think, was uh, was the word. Okay, um, moving on to uh, a bit of other news. The Nationals leader federally, David Littleproud MP, has put constitutional recognition for local government back on the agenda this week, Steve. Who would have seen that coming, Chris? But, um, mm. <laughs> yeah, but we'll find ally, allies in the most interesting places. So, yeah, Mr Littleproud has basically said, and I'm probably verbaling him somewhat, so I apologise for that, but that um, the constitutional recognition of local government will put the councils on an equal footing with the states in terms of um, access to funding and would, you know, in that sense, uh, mend some of the inefficiencies that we, uh, that we currently see in mm. use of funds. So he's, he's penned a letter to the editor, which has got to run in some of the papers this week, uh, where he's drawing a link with the pandemic, exposing uh, deficiencies with the system of federation, basically, particularly at the state level. And while I don't think he's going as far as to say the states should be abolished, he's certainly saying that the, uh, the, the, the local government level can be bolstered somewhat to, uh, to increase efficiencies, to deliver services more efficiently and to remove duplication. Oh, and it will be sort of interesting to see where this goes, Chris, because we haven't really, I think it's been a few years now since we've had, you know, that real push for local government constitutional recognition. So it's about time yeah. we had another one. I um, thought it was dead in the water, to be honest. I didn't think it would come back. Oh, it just keeps every few years, mm. every five to 10 years, back it comes. Um, it will be really interesting as to where it sits in the new federal government's view of federation and the arrangements that underpin federation um and as we know unless there's bipartisan support um not much point running a, a referendum that said um uh i would have thought that you know the federal government at the moment is committed to um constitutional recognition of our first nations people um that will be a priority it will be interesting to see if they can coalesce Yes. All right. So, so watch this space. I'm a bit of a sceptic on the uh, the chances of that ever getting up, but uh, hopefully I can be proved wrong, Steve. Exactly. I'm yeah. with you 100%, Chris. I note that the, the new headquarters at the City of Greater Geelong have been completed. What a magnificent looking building this is. And I think uh, the first of the teams of, from the council will be moving in this month. Well, the uh, the staff at the City of Greater Geelong have not cohabited since amalgamation. So to uh, to have that magnificent facility, I think, uh, you know, will be to the benefit of the city and the organisation. Yeah, no, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right. It's going to be called Wariki Nial, which is obviously an Indigenous name, and it'll be open to the public on Monday the 5th of September. So well done to... Uh, the folks at Geelong, and of course, uh, I know Martin Cutter will be delighted to see that happen before he steps down next month. Exactly. Yeah, no, congratulations to Martin and to the council, and you can be first in the queue. Yes, well, it's just up the road for me, there isn't it? So I will. I'll go and have a look. Um, MAV has called for an end to rate capping. Uh, you would have expected this sort of messaging to start coming as we head down towards a state election, Steve. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think... Um, the fact that um, councils are under incredible financial pressure comes as a surprise to anyone. So, um, 
yeah, I think props to the MAV for making that call. I was interested by the response of one of the usual suspects, Ratepayers Victoria, Chris, when I looked at their website this morning. Yeah, what did they say? They said that they agree that rate capping should um, be removed because... What? what? So, sorry, <laughs> I, I, sorry. Um, can, can, you've made a mistake, clearly. Can we start No, no I, I, thought, thought, I had to I, go back and read as well. It, I, th- it I thought you said removed. they agree that rate capping should be removed. Yeah, possibly, yeah, they, they said it should be removed because, and this, again, is my words, because yeah. there's so much waste and inefficiency that really we need something like some increases in rates to sort of refocus the public attention um, on, you know, vanity projects and the waste in local government. Oh, okay. Sting in the tail there. That's uh, that's an interesting piece of logic. I, I will go and have a read of that to make sure I understand what they're saying. Do that. Thank you, uh, Steve. Um, down in Tassie, this story we've sort of been following a little bit, oh. the, the councillor that was uh, uh, convicted of prohibited behaviour, basically indecent exposure, exposing himself. Uh, there's been lots of elected member jokes doing the rounds around this one. Don't necessarily need to repeat those, Steve except I've just done it. Um, Darren Darren Fairbrother is his name. Uh, he's been suspended for three months from Waratah Wynyard Council, which is the maximum term or maximum penalty allowed under the Code of Conduct system in Tasmania. That's a determination that the Code of Conduct panel has made this week, effective last Monday. Yeah, I look, that's a really good outcome, Chris. I like the idea that when something like that happens, that we all just stay quiet about it, let the process take its course, and the process has taken its course, and isn't that good? So uh, you're right almost on all counts there. Uh, people haven't been quiet about it, but the process no, has, I know. <laughs> has run its course. <laughs> and, uh, of course, what that means is that we'll take uh, that council through, in fact, all councils in Tasmania, through to elections in October, and it'll be interesting to see whether he puts his hand up again, and if he does, whether the community... Uh, gives him any attention at all. Yeah, Chris, and just to explain, well, I think our listeners would know anyway. Um, my point is that whenever someone is inveigled into a administrative process like that and there is a public clamouring, they get to argue that they haven't had a fair hearing. So, yes, you know. yeah, yeah, very true, very true. Oh, I knew what you meant. Now, uh, a couple of uh, classified announcements. A new executive director at Local Government Victoria announced this week in Mike Gooey, who's, I think, well-connected within the state uh, level of, uh, of government and has been involved out in the regional areas in some economic development uh, works, and I think is currently the ED of Animal Welfare Victoria. He's coming across to Local Government Victoria next month. He is, and, and Mike did a um, Churchill Fellowship some years ago and studied something like regional oh. development. So well-connected in local government, um, extensive um, uh, state government career. Um, I th- welcome Mike and we wish him well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I said next month. It might actually be right at the end of this month. I'm not sure on the date now, but he's not far away from, uh, from taking the reins at local government, Victoria, mm-hmm. and I'm sure he'll be greatly welcomed. And so Colin Morrison will go back to his substantive role and has done a terrific job um, filling the breach. Um, always um, a pleasure dealing with Colin. So well done to him, Chris. Here, here. And I, I think I heard he's going to take a, a well-earned break as well. So good luck. Good luck to him. Uh, Ali Wastey at Bass Coast Shire has been uh, re-engaged, uh, can we say, or reappointed on a new contract of the maximum term of five years this week at Bass Coast, which will take her through effectively to early 2028. So that's a great vote of confidence from that council in its CEO, who's been out there and quite uh, 
visibly doing some terrific work in the sector recently. It has indeed. Congratulations to Ali, to Mayor Michael Whelan and to the Council. And uh, Steve, we missed this one last week, but there was uh, a confirmation that some new amendments to the Local Government Act had gone through the legislative process. I think these largely relate to uh, the rating system and hardship arrangements at councils, uh, interest rates on overdue rates and, and those, uh, those sorts of issues. Am I right? You are, Chris, and there was a local government Victoria bulletin on the uh, on the enactment of the local government rating and other matters amendment act, and you are quite right. These are around the hardship arrangements and the you know the obligations on councils in uh, collecting rates and other arrears. Yes, and in uh, to to a certain extent, in response to the ombudsman's report from a little while back now on how councils have administered hardship arrangements, particularly through the pandemic. Yeah, that and the Essential Service Commission's done a bunch of work around what good practice looks like, Chris. Yeah, excellent. All right, uh, that's the end of my list, Steve, for this week. Have you got anything else? I shudder to say this, Chris, but I think we're done. We're done. Excellent. All right, thank you. You go and have a good Friday and a good weekend and get working on that super secret but very exciting VLGA strategy. Oh, you have to hold your breath for a while on that one, Chris. Will do. Okay. All right. Thanks, Steve. Talk soon. Cheers, Chris. Steve Cooper, and that is uh, VLGA Connect. Once again, our thank you to Hunt & Hunt Lawyers, our terrific sponsors for the program, and thank you to you for watching and listening in ever-increasing numbers. Long may, may that continue, and we'll see you again very soon. For more. Oh, actually, while I have your attention, a special episode of VLGA Connect coming early next week where we look at some of the Premier Sustainability Awards finalists from Greater Geelong and Greater Bendigo in uh, particular. So look out for that, and we'll see you for more VLGA Connect very soon.